What's going on, fellas? I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. And we are back for the third edition of the MMA DFS show on my guy Sal Vetri's channel. Shout out to everybody that's giving your boy support on a week-to-week basis. This is only my third episode, and this is the second pay-per-view that we're going to be covering. So it's a big uh, event, as always. Obviously, not as big as a Conor McGregor card, but still a big event nonetheless whenever we have uh, a numbered UFC event as well as a, a pay-per-view. UFC event. Very much looking forward to it. A huge welterweight scrap in the main event for the title between Kamaru Usman, who in my opinion is on the precipice of being one of the GOATs at 175 70 pounds uh, going up against a training partner of his in, in Gilbert Burns, who is very deserving of this title shot and brings a very real threats into this fight. So I really can't wait to break it down for you guys from a betting perspective as well as a, a DFS perspective as well too. As I always kick off this episode, I do want to plug myself again. You guys can find me at MMALOTN on Twitter, at MMALOTN on the IG, as well as my own YouTube channel, MMALOTN, where you guys can find my episodes or my podcast dropping every Monday, a nice early preview to the upcoming event you know we've had some issues in regards to uh some late cancellations and dropouts so the card usually doesn't look the same from what i drop it on monday but at least it gives you guys a nice early perspective on what to expect uh for the upcoming card also i do want to plug my patreon the link is in the description below five bucks a month you guys get a ton of uh content including early access to my breakdowns uh, all the picks that i make on an official basis from a betting perspective uh the best bets and props article where i go over every Every single fight and uh, break it down uh, for you guys very briefly by give you the best uh, money line or total and then the best prop as well for every single fight on the card. Uh, and then we have a great Discord channel as well too where we have over 220 members uh, on the Patreon, a vast majority of them on the Discord as well too. Great community, not just giving picks on the UFC, but also dropping their knowledge on other sports as well too. So it's a great value added there. So shout out to all those guys. Also, a big shout out to our sponsors, Monkey Knife Fight. Use promo code UFC50 and they'll match your deposit up 100% up to 50 bucks. Again, it's a player props, uh, fantasies, uh, sports uh, website. It's very fun, very cool spin on the whole daily fantasy thing. You go in there for the UFC specifically, you're either betting on over-under on fantasy points or over-under on significant strikes. Um, as always, I'll usually drop uh, a tip for you guys at the end of the episode just to give you guys a you know a foot into the door when it comes into the monkey knife fight round but you know i've I've, i haven't been doing too bad in terms of the tips that i drop for you guys usually the last two episodes we've had at least one of them fall off so hopefully both of these ones stick on the card and we can give you guys some solid uh tips on that as well too so once again make sure you guys check out monkey knife fight use promo code ufc50 and you guys will get 100 percent matched up to 50 bucks on your initial deposit so show some guys over there at monkey knife fight some love all right let's get into this card uh in my opinion it's a very very fun card even though it may not uh, have the names of um uh, you know, a Conor McGregor or Dustin Poirier or anything like that. But for those people unfamiliar with Kamaru Usman, in my opinion, he's going to be the next best thing at, not the next best, he is the best thing currently at 170 pounds and is the welterweight champion, looking to defend his title for a third time. And I keep comparing the guy to uh, George St. Pierre, and uh, you'll find out why once I actually get into those breakdowns itself. All right, so let's get into the actual uh, breakdowns of the cards here. Uh, just a note, we don't have any uh, 
uh, salaries yet for Andre Ewell and Chris Gutierrez, which was put together on Monday. Uh, but I will do my best in terms of giving you guys an idea of what I think their salaries are going to be. So moving forward, we will always be recording this, uh, these episodes on Wednesday evening to release for Thursday afternoon. Uh, and uh, whether we have salaries or not, I'll do my best to at least uh, spitball where I think their salaries are going to be at. Lastly, uh, before we do get into the breakdowns, we are going to do a pre-lock show uh, coming up this Saturday before the pay-per-view. So I believe the first fight is either going to be at 7 or 7.30 p.m., meaning we'll go live an hour before that. I'll have a very special guest joining me as well, too, taking all your questions, comments, and concerns uh, pre-lock. So pretty much we want to help you guys all the way up until the point the fights start. And uh, yeah, we'll be doing it live. I'm very much looking forward forward to it, and I'm very much looking forward to having the guest on that I'm going to be having on. So it should be a very, very fun time. So once again, that's either 7 p.m. Oh, sorry. 6 p.m. or 6.30 p.m. Eastern on uh, on fight day. Again, it all depends on how the card shake out, shakes out and if we lose any more fights on, along the way. But obviously, me and Sal will let you guys know when that start time is, so I can't wait for, for you guys to check that out. All right, let's get into the breakdowns. This is what you guys are here for. I'm very much uh, excited to break this down for you guys. Uh, so let's get right into it. So first and foremost... We got a flyweight bout between Jillian Robertson and Miranda Maverick. We got 7,700 at plus 120 for Jillian Robertson and then 8,500 with a minus 140 on Miranda Maverick. And this is a great fight between two young up-and-coming girls, one with a little bit more experience within the UFC, which is Jillian Robertson. She's only 25 years old. And then we got Miranda Maverick, who's 23 years old, uh, and this is only going to be her second fight in the UFC. However, even though it's only her second fight in the UFC, she's still fighting solid competition on the on the Invicta scene with which is uh, an all-women's promotion and a lot of those women are being groomed to eventually come over to the UFC and she was definitely one of them. She's getting the the rub a little bit quicker than most women, especially her being at 23 years old and her having an 8 and 2 record shows that she's been fighting solid competition. In her last fight alone, she went out there and defeated Liana Jojua, racking up 110 points. Um, in terms of the DFS world, and uh, she did a good job in terms of showing, showcasing her uh, her striking. Her Muay Thai is just absolutely nasty. She throws a lot of power into her shots, and she has an ever-improving uh, jiu-jitsu game as well, too, which is where I think that Jillian Robertson will potentially have, actually not potentially, will definitely have a grappling advantage. If I was Miranda Maverick, I want to keep this fight on the feet. That's where I truly believe that she'll get her best work done, uh, and I truly think that's a, a spot that she could actually finish Jillian Robertson. Robertson's one of those fighters that wants to go out there, not commit 100% to the striking, but just do enough to make you think, okay, maybe she's a striker right now. And then boom, she's going to throw a double leg or a single leg and then just try to get you down. She's also one of those women that doesn't mind pulling guard, which, uh, you know, luckily for her, gets the fight to the ground. But unluckily for her, puts her in a compromising position in terms of being on her back. She does have good reversals. She she does have good sweeps, and she is very offensive off of her back with her with the submission attempts that she throws. But when, if she's not able to pull it off, we see fights like the Tyler Santos fight, which was her last one, where we see her only rack up twelve points because she's just not able to pull off a submission. She's not able to get much control time, uh, and her opponent is just much stronger than her. Miranda Maverick is going to come into this fight much stronger than her, which is my concern here, that if she's not able to get the submission off of her back, that she's going to be in some trouble and that we might even get a ground and pound finish from Miranda Maverick here as well too. So the side that I'm leaning on is Miranda Maverick. I think she can get it done with her punches, with her strikes. I think she'll be strong enough to stay out of those bad positions when it comes to the grappling realm. But I think that Jillian Robertson is absolutely live in pulling off a submission here. So 
the angle that I took from this uh, in terms of a betting perspective is actually I bet the under two and a half at plus 150 as I do think that both girls have high upside in terms of finishing their opponents. And uh, the last time that we saw, well, the last two times that we saw Jillian Robertson in the cage, she went to a decision both times, winning and losing one. The Tyler Santos fight, again, she was just uh, outpowered there. Tyler Santos, not the most offensive with when it, when it comes to looking for a finish. And then Poliana Botelio just doing nothing in terms of trying to get it back to her feet where the opening usually uh, finds itself before Jillian Robertson in terms of finding your submissions when opponents overextend themselves trying to get back to their feet. Pollyanna Botanio is just like, I'm good. I'm just going to stay on the ground. It doesn't matter. And unfortunately for uh, Jillian Robertson, you know, as offensive-minded as she is, she wasn't able to get the finish there, but she did manage to rack up 94.5 points there in that fight. But my pick is going to be Miranda Maverick. I think she gets this fight done via first or second round TKO. I like her at that 8,500 price. I think she could definitely um, have some value there, but uh, the uh, Jillian Robertson finish would not surprise me at all. So if you're one of those guys that builds a lot of lines, I think having a little bit of both is, uh, is a smart thing to do here, as I do think that we'll see a finish regardless what side it comes from. All right, let's keep the train moving along. Next up, we got Gabe Green going up against Phil Rowe. We got 8,000 on Gabe Green, 8,200 on Phil Rowe. And obviously, the salaries were released before the line moving started to take place. And now we get a favorite coming in at underdog uh, salary here. We got Gabe Green around that minus 135 range coming in at 8,000. And then Phil Rowe at plus 115 coming at 8,200. Now, I have a lot of question marks regarding both guys still. You know what I mean, we've only seen Gabe Green come in on short notice against Daniel Rodriguez, lose that fight via decision, put up 51 and a half points in there, not too shabby, but still ended up losing. Uh, and then on the Phil Rowe side of thing, we, things, we haven't seen him for a long time now. The last time we saw him was against uh, Leon Shabazian in the contender series where he got dropped and rocked early. Uh, and then in the second round, he started to put it on Leon and then eventually put him out in the third round. Um this is another fight that I expect to go under two and a half rounds. So you're going to ha- want to have a little bit of both guys here. I do favor Gabe a little bit more as I do think that he has a, a more comfortable striking. Uh, he is more comfortable in the striking, uh, has some decent power in his hands. He does have solid jujitsu as well. I believe he's one of those guys out of that 10th planet camp where he's just very awkward and unorthodox with his approach when it comes to the jujitsu room. And not to mention that he has a wrestling background to back that up. Phil Rowe, on the other hand, he seems more like a guy that was fit for MMA from a physical standpoint. I mean, he's 6'3", 80 and a half inch reach, especially at 170 pounds. That's absolutely massive. You're talking about a five inch height advantage he's going to have here on Gabe Green, as well as a six and a half reach inch advantage uh, in terms of his reach. Absolutely insane to get a guy with those metrics coming in at 170 pounds. However, I think that both guys are, up until this point are relatively unproven. We got Gabe Green at nine and three. He's 27 years old. You got Phil Rowe at seven and two, 30 years old. You know, Phil just not having the best luck in terms of getting to the cage and staying active. Yeah, I mean, he did, I believe, make his uh, pro MMA debut around 2014. So he's been in the game for seven years and he's only had nine fights. That's very concerning for sure. He trains there at Fusion, uh, trains down in Florida at uh, Fusion XL, where you see other guys like Jack Ray Suzu, who's been in his corner a couple times, as well as um, Mike Perry. Uh, and we have a couple other guys. Rodolfo Vieira, who's also fighting on this card, is from that gym as well, too. But uh, for, for me, Phil Rowe just has this. He looks a little green still, which is, you know, no pun intended here, but he looks still green. He looks a little bit raw. He doesn't look the most comfortable on the feet. The only time he looks comfortable on the feet is when he lands one of his power shots and then just goes ape shit on his opponents and is able to really get them into trouble. Um, however, I think Gabe has solid durability. I think we'll see him kind of um, 
you know, combat the the size and reach a disadvantage here by taking this fight to the ground. And Phil Rowe is quite active off his back. I'll definitely give him that. And then obviously training with Jacare Souza is a big upside as well too when it comes to the jiu-jitsu room. But I feel like we see Gabe a little bit more comfortable in the situations. I think we'll see him avoid any submission attempts or anything from Phil Rowe. And I think we'll kind of see him dominate him on the ground. I think both guys are have a high upside in terms of finishing here with the uh, under two and a half being around minus 125, minus 130. So you are gonna want to have a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of lineups with both guys here. But I do fade uh, favor Gabe Green a little bit more here. I think he's the one that eventually gets it done, and I think he's the one that gets it done via submission. Not the most confident there, just because again these guys are relatively new to the UFC, and I still need to see more of them, especially on this grand stage, uh, before I can really ride home about being like, okay, Gabe Green is a is a lock. That's just not my my stance in this fight. All right, let's move things along. We got Ricky Simone against Brian Kelleher. These guys were scheduled to fight earlier this year. However, Kelleher had to pull out due to, I believe, testing positive for COVID. We saw Ricky Simone go in there against Gaetano Pirello and absolutely smash that dude. It racks up 131 points after uh, a second round submission victory there. And that was a fight where he could do pretty much anything he wanted to. On the flip side, you got Perello only landing uh, or only scoring three three point two points in that fight. That just lets you know how dominant of a fight that was for Ricky Simone. On the flip side, you got Brian Kelleher coming in at seventy one hundred uh, plus two fifteen, uh, and he's coming off a quick submission victory over Ray Rodriguez, where the guy pretty much just fell into his finishing move, which is the guillotine, and we saw him get that finish uh, and rack up one hundred fifteen points. Before that, we saw him fight a guy in Cody Stimmen who stylistically almost the same as Ricky Simone I'd have to get the slight striking advantage to Cody Stamen rather than Ricky Simone here but Ricky is still quite good on the feet the one thing that you know stands out to a lot of people when talking about Ricky Simone is the fact that he got knocked out by Uriah Faber you know four fights ago now and that just st- sticks out to a lot of people for me it's more of an anomaly like that just happens to opponents every now and then and somebody that was supposed to fight this uh, on this event Jimmy Rivera got knocked out by Marlon Moraes and since then hasn't really shown much issues with his chin like he got knocked down a couple times by Piotr Rian but you're talking about a bantamweight champion there uh, but in all of the fights, you've seen him eat shots and continue to walk forward. That's what I think happened with Ricky Simone, with getting dropped by Faber and then getting finished. In my eyes, a little bit of an early stoppage as well, too. So I think that that could definitely be taken into consideration. But I think he has a decent enough chin to be able to handle what Brian Keller brings to him. I think we'll see Simone go out there and just grapple fuck this guy. Push him up against the cage. Maybe not complete takedowns, but even if he does, he'll get some solid top control. But Kelleher does a good job with his takedown defense, as well as keeping fights on on the feet, which is why we saw Cody Stamen have to outwork him on the feet rather than actually uh, beat him with the uh, with um, w- with the wrestling, which is what he normally goes out there and uh, and does. But uh, I still do like Ricky Simone here. I do think he controls where this fight goes. I think he stays away from the power of Brian Kelleher, and I think he just overpowers him. You know, I mean, I don't think he's. Uh, I don't think he's a rookie in the sense of when he shoots for double legs that he's going to leave his neck out there for Brian to to snatch up. That's Brian's like fatality move. That's his that's his go-to move whenever guys want to shoot on him. And that's what scares people away from shooting on him to begin with. But I think that Ricky Simone is just so well-versed. You're talking about a guy coming into his 21st fight, has had several UFC fights now, um, coming off probably the best performance that he's had. And albeit against not the greatest competition, but at least shows you, okay, when I'm going up there against guys as heavy charge, I get the job done and I score 131 points for you that's what we get from Ricky Simone and I think he's going to do that to Brian Kelleher here 
personally, I have a small reservation about Ricky Simone, which is keeping me away from betting him at that minus 255 range. But if we get him lower than that minus 200 range, then I'd say he's a little bit more favorable at the betting perspective. But even at 9,100, I think he has all the chops to go out there and live up to that price tag. I expect him to accrue a ton of control time here against Brian Kelleher and then land some good shots on the feet as well too whenever they are disengaged and at range. So I'll go at Ricky Simone. I think he wins this fight via decision. I think that Brian Kelleher is very durable. So we'll get 15 minutes out of this fight regardless. Um, the only finish I see coming would be a Brian Kelleher KO or a Brian Kelleher guillotine. But I think those are very low percentage and I'll have to favor Ricky Simone in this fight. So I'll go with Simone to win this fight uh, via decision. Next up, we got the fight that we don't have a salary on right now. Uh, Chris Gutierrez versus Andre Ewell. This is a fight put together on Monday, Sunday or Monday. Uh, both guys coming in on relatively short notice, hence why we have a 140-pound catchweight for this. Normally, these guys compete at 135 pounds. However, given the short notice nature of it, especially for Chris Gutierrez, um, you got you, you to gotta give them some slack there. Now, if you guys remember, Andre Ewell was supposed to fight Cody Stamen last time around. However, he tested positive for COVID. And even though he tested negative the next two times, it didn't fall in line with the UFC's protocol in terms of uh, after a positive test, a fighter has to quarantine for at least 10 days. Obviously, that would have, uh, you know, Bought, uh, bit into him uh, competing at his uh, the last event but now he's cleared ready to go still in fight shape and uh, gets that extra five pound allowance that he doesn't have to cut the weight uh, and, and he gets a, a solid opponent here in Chris Gutierrez so with them being uh, with Chris Gutierrez being around minus 170 uh, even down to minus 140 at a couple places as well too I expect his salary to be around between 8200 and 8600 I think um and then obviously for uh, Ewell, you're talking about maybe 7,400 7, to 7,800. I'm actually leaning on the Chris Gutierrez side here. And I think we're seeing some solid work from him. And with his only recent loss being to Jaune Barcelos, the guy's been looking very good as of late. Not the greatest opponent in Ryan McDonald, but he still racks up 58 points there. Joel DeFreitas, very close fight there, racks up 64.5 points there. The Vince Morales fight, probably his best uh, performance to date because we saw him go out there and implement the calf kicks, which is just an absolute game changer when guys are able to implement it to the highest of abilities. And I think that that's exactly what we saw him do there against uh, Vince Morales. Um, Ends up, I believe, finishing him in the third round, racks up 114 points there. Uh, and then he goes to a draw against Cody Durden in his last fight, which was very bizarre because in that first round, we saw Durden get the uh, get the takedown within 30 seconds of that, that round beginning uh, and then just ride out back control for the majority of that round. So obvious 10-8 there, considering that we got little to no damage from the Chris Gutierrez side of things. And then Gutierrez wins the next two rounds, you know, again, targeting that calf kick and uh, basing his game, game plan around that. Andre Ewell, on the other hand, is coming off of two straight victories. The Jonathan Martinez one, very sketchy. And then the the uh, the Irwin Rivera one, we saw him use his height and his reach to its full capacity, where he was able to keep Rivera on the outside, use his faster and quicker hands. Uh, did let Rivera come in on a couple of those shots um, and, and kind of, you know, do some solid damage in that third round. But in those first two rounds is where Andre Ewell truly gets his best work done. Uh, all in all, he was only able to accrue about 80.8 points against Erwin Rivera. Um, I'm pretty sure he was a pretty solid favorite in that fight as well, too. And that's not really... You, you want to get over 100 points when you're playing up for these guys, right? And uh, that's not what you got with Andre Ewell last time around. Um, Andre Ewell's... Uh, pros. You know, I mean, the guy has very fast hands, very good hands, a decent um, understanding of range. But here, 
He's coming with a one-inch height disadvantage, but an eight-inch reach advantage. So maybe he'll still be able to stay on the outside, but I think he's going to have to eat some calf kicks from uh, uh, Chris Gutierrez here, which is going to really um, almost render him immobile. You know what I mean? It's really going to affect his movement. And that's something huge when you're talking about a guy who relies on his hands in terms of getting his shots in and then hopping back out before eating too much damage. So now you're talking about going up against a guy who likes targeting the legs. Andre Ewell has a little bit of a wider stance, so I think he's going to have to sacrifice his legs every now and then. And he doesn't seem to be the greatest uh, leg checker as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, a guy, like, for people that are unfamiliar with checking leg kicks, it's pretty much the, the counter to anybody throwing a leg kick. If somebody throws a leg kick, you raise your leg, it uh, unflexes the muscles and hits the shin, which causes, uh, you know, pain more so for the kicker than the guy receiving the kick. And Andre Ewell just doesn't seem, seem like a guy that has the perfect understanding of that in terms of using it uh, to its full uh, capacity to scare off a guy from like Chris Gutierrez from getting away from those calf kicks. So I do like the, the striking that we see from Gutierrez. Uh, again, it's it's uh, it's in plain sight. His his main focus is attacking those legs, those calves, and then doing the rest of his work with his hands afterwards. When his opponent can't one move out of the way of of his strikes, and two aren't able to get the best pop off their shots either. Too. So I like Gutierrez in this spot. I think he's live for a finish as well. Too later in this fight, those calf kicks really start to add up on these guys, and a lot of people are still almost neglecting the fact that they're effective but man like just look at several fights that we've seen as of late and several guys that are using that and being successful with it so i do like the camp that he comes from as well with factory x and mark montoya and i'm sure they can craft a game plan here to beat a guy like andre ewell and i think that gutierrez is very live for getting a late finish here so i'll go with gutierrez to win this fight by second or third round uh ko tko whatever you want to call it all right, next up, we got a straw weight belt between Mallory Martin coming in at minus 155 with an 8,600 uh, salary, and then Poliana Vienna coming in as the dog at plus 135 with a 7,600 um, uh, salary. So just like the previous women's fight that I talked about, uh, my approach here is the is the under two and a half. I think both girls have finishing capabilities. I got the bet at plus 180. I think that's solid value. Uh, and I think it almost has to come upon Poliana Vienna's, um, uh, actually, it's actually in Mallory Martin's court in terms of how this fight goes. Now, she has a uh, wrestling advantage. I think that Vienna has the jiu-jitsu advantage, you know, state champion for numerous amounts of times. I think they said 20-plus time state champion has amazing jiu-jitsu, even though she did get submitted two fights ago against Veronica Macedo, who's primarily a striker. Uh, but we saw great dexterity from Macedo in that fight to lock up that armbar. Beautiful, beautiful armbar there. Uh, and then luckily for Vienna, we saw her uh, right her wrongs, snap the three-fight skid that she was on last time and get a submission victory over Emily Whitmire and racks up 95 points. Again, first-round submission victory there for a solid win. So right now, Poliana Vienna is 2-3 and three in the UFC. Uh, luckily for her, she saved her job last time around, but I think she still has a lot to offer here. Her striking leaves a lot to be desired. She's very wild. She keeps her chin up in the air, but she throws with a lot of heat and a lot of power behind her strikes as well, uh, which is why maybe sometimes she gets away with it. A more technical striker will probably be able to catch her. I think that Mallory Martin is live to definitely catch her on the feet, especially when we see Vienna overextend. Um, if you guys remember, Vienna was one of the first person, first people to ever stop Amanda Hibas on the regional scene, and it was all due to her just crazy, wild striking style. Um, I do think that we're we're seeing some improvements 
from Vienna in the striking range. Uh, you know, tighter, cleaner shots, good kicks up the middle as well, too. Uh, she's going to have a one-inch height advantage as well as a four-inch reach advantage here, which I think will come into play. But I think that this fight will eventually hit the ground, and I think that's where Vienna is really going to thrive. Uh, whether it's her pulling car guard or her uh, pulling off some of her hip tosses that we've seen her uh, complete in the past, I think she'll be able to get this fight to the ground, and I think we'll see her be able to pull off a submission against Mallory Martin. Now, Martin's no slouch. I mean, I, she's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu herself, too, and I think she has some solid chops on the ground, uh, but she does leave herself vulnerable at times. You know, I mean, you can't really hang your head too low uh, getting tapped out by a girl like Verna Jandiroba, who, in my opinion, is a top-five uh, girl in this division. Uh, so, But it still did show a couple of incompetencies in uh, Mallory Martin's game. That's where I think we see Poliana truly uh, you know, um, start to pull away in this fight is when this fight does hit the ground. It, it, if Mally wants to go out there and just you know push her up against the cage and clinch fuck her, then maybe it might play against my angle of seeing this fight go under two and a half rounds. But once this fight hits the ground, I think both women are very live in terms of getting a finish. Whether it's Poliana overextending on her submissions a little bit too much, and we see Mallory just take advantage of that, and even possibility of Mallory pulling off a submission of her own. But I do think that uh, given the wild style of Poliana, it leaves the uh, finish open for either woman here. I believe uh, combined... Uh, they have a 68%, uh, um, uh, sorry, 68% of the time their fights have hit the under two and a half and at that plus 180 range you're getting roughly 34% uh, implied odds here. So you are getting some value there if you do take the under two and a half here. With that said, I like Vienna. I think that she's the one that ends up getting the finish. We've seen Martin rocked and dropped in the past before against girls like Hannah Cyphers. Uh, so maybe Vienna just commits to her strikes, looks to eventually drop Martin and then follow up a submission there. So I, I lean Vienna. I think she gets the finish probably first or second round. And I think she's live as well as being one of the uh, lesser salaried girls uh, that might not be getting as much love. But she's definitely one of my favorite dogs on this card. So I'll go with Vienna to win this fight via submission. Next up, we got Bilal Mohammed at minus 325 coming in at 9,200 against uh, Diego Lima, who we haven't seen for a while now, uh, coming in at plus 250 at that 7,000 range. We are seeing a lot of money come in now on Bilal Mohammed, so I wouldn't be surprised to see that line even higher at some of these spots. And personally, I'm a, I'm a Bilal Mohammed fan. However, I gotta say that this line is just a little bit too wide. Um, I don't know where this narrative is coming from that Bilal is just a lock. I, you know, I, I think people continuously overlook a guy like Diego Lima, myself included. You know, I mean, I used to fade him a lot in the past, but he has shown improvement. He's 31 years old. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, has great striking. And not to mention, he's another guy, just like Chris Gutierrez, who started to implement calf kicks into his game. And given his Muay Thai background as well, I think that's going to be very, very helpful for him in fights specifically like this one against Bilal. Bilal is an all-movement guy. He likes to mix up the game. He's not a, a specialist in one aspect of MMA. He's a great all-around fighter, a jack-of-all-trades, if you want to call it. I mean, didn't really have a crazy wrestling background doesn't have a crazy jujitsu background doesn't have a crazy striking background either but he mixes it together so well which is why he's able to get uh wins over most of his opponents like his last performance against uh, Lyman Good that was a very close fight but we saw his ability to mix up the MMA game as to why he was able to be successful in that fight and get the win uh, being a guy like Takashi Sato as well too, we saw him you know, use grappling, use striking, use clinching. He used all aspects to get his hand raised in his last three fights. Then we see him go out there and fight a technician like Jeff Neal and uh, a striking technician, albeit uh, like Jeff Neal, and just get completely outstriked and get completely dummied. 
I don't think that's going to happen here against Diego Lima, but I truly think that this fight is much, much closer that the, than the odds are indicating. I think that Diego Lima is the better technical striker here, and obviously being the black belt in jiu-jitsu, you got to give him a little bit of an edge there. Now, I don't think his wrestling is as good to get Bilal Mohammed to the ground, but I think that Bilal will be the one that's eventually seeking uh, the takedowns. That's where we might see Diego Lima be able to pull something off of his back. I'm not putting my chips too much into that basket, as I do believe that uh, Mohammed will be able to stay out of those submissions and do some good work from on top. My thing is once this, when this fight is on the feet. I think Diego Lima will have a good shot in terms of outstriking Bilal here. And if he's successful in terms of implementing his calf-kicking game as well too, he could be successful in slowing down Bilal, slowing down the movement, and being much more uh, successful on the feet. Now, I will still pick Bilal to win this fight. There's a lot of X-factors, and one of them being the, the long layoff that we've seen for uh, Diego Lima. I, don't, I believe it's since uh, October of 2019, which is the last time we saw him, where... Uh, we actually saw Israel Adesanya unify the belts against Robert Whitaker, but it's been that long. I mean, we've seen Izzy fight how many times now? Whereas Diego Lima, he's just been sitting on the bench. So he's on a three-fight winning streak over solid wins. Uh, you know, uh, comes in as like a plus 350 dog to Chad Laprise, knocks him out in the first round. Comes in against a dog as uh, Court McGee, uh, wins that fight via decision. And then the Luke Jumal fight, even though it was a split... I thought he did a good job in terms of uh, outstriking him and uh, being the more active fighter. And obviously, he scored 61 points in that fight. So that just lets you know uh, from that perspective as well, too. His two fights before that, you should know, and Jesse Taylor, we saw him get absolutely smothered in those fights. Those guys were much stronger and much more powerful grapplers. But I, I would rate those guys slightly higher than below Muhammad when we're talking about wrestling and grappling credentials. Um, so yeah, this fight is much closer than the odds indicate. Even if it hits plus 400, I might have to sprinkle a little bit on Diego Lima here, who I truly think is live. However, I will side with Bilal Muhammad. I don't think he lives up to the 9200 price tag. So I think people might want to go a little bit lighter on him uh, instead of having to pay up for him and digging deeper uh, with the uh, with the dogs, as I don't think too many dogs are super live here. Um, but yeah, I'll go with Bilal Muhammad to win this fight via decision, but I will definitely have some Diego Lima on some of my lineups, and I may even have an uh, official bet on him as well too. Uh, next up, we got Rodolfo Vieira versus Anthony Hernandez. We got a great fight here. Another one where I think the line is a little bit too wide. We got 7-0 Rodolfo Vieira coming in as a minus 400 favorite, 9,300 price tag. Uh, Anthony Hernandez on the flip side, plus 325 with the 6,900 price tag. The only guy in the 6,000 uh, range. So I'll start off with Anthony Hernandez side of things. Why well, I personally think that has uh, a solid upside. I think the guy is very skilled. I think he has a, a ton of tools. Um, and given his game plan and his style, I think he's a guy that can go out there and cause trouble for a guy like Hodolfo, especially if uh, Hodolfo is not able to get him out of there within about a round. Uh, we've seen Hodolfo when he's, you know, like in the Oscar Piajota fight, where he doesn't get the finish in the first round. He is sucking one a little bit. But luckily for him, Piajota is one of those guys that is just not that skilled. And so he's able to get the fight to the ground and then eventually pull off a submission against Haberbeg Safarov. You know what I mean? It takes a gruesome injury to his eyeball. He's still able to get the fight done. But if that fight goes into the next round, there's a high likelihood that that fight probably gets stopped because his eye was almost shut. You know what I mean? Uh, so now you're coming in here against the guy in Anthony Hernandez, who, in my opinion, is the best opponent that he's faced to date. Um, he reminds me of Cain Velasquez. Shout out to my older school MMA fans here. Cain Velasquez was one of those guys that just puts pressure on you and just doesn't let you uh, breathe. And that's what Anthony Hernandez's game is. He likes to move forward. 
likes to land big shots, likes to clinch you up against the cage, try to take you to the ground and try to ground and pound you or look for a submission of his own. I doubt we see him try to engage in the clinch or the grappling as much in this fight, maybe not as early on, but later in the fight, we'll probably see him go out there and try to really put it on him. Now, the fight doesn't go to decision is like minus 430, minus 440, and for good measure. You know what I mean? Either we get a Hardolfo Vieira early finish or we get an Anthony Hernandez possible knockout early or even a later finish given uh, the, the compromised gas tank of uh, Vieira. Now, historically, we have to look back at these huge minus 400, minus 500 favorites that are coming into the UFC and are just going out there and dusting these guys early. But once they're pushed further, they collapse. Most notably, Louis Kosi. If you guys remember, he fought a guy named Sasha Palatnikov. Both guys making their UFC debuts. Louis Kosi comes in minus 400, minus 500, minus 600 favorite. Expected to go out there and put this guy out in the first round. He's not able to. Then he starts to gas. Then we see Sasha Palatnikov take over later and finish the fight in the third round. And that's what we can absolutely see here against uh, with the Vera and Hernandez. I mean, Hernandez, a lot of people are fading this guy because uh, Kevin Holland was able to dispatch of him relatively quickly in their fight within a minute or so. I mean, that was a fight where they were both lined out of pick him. So now you're telling me that he's a plus 325 dog to a guy that, in my opinion, is still relatively unproven? I think people are absolutely shooting themselves in the foot by parlaying a guy like Rodolfo Vieira. I think that the, if you do want to parlay chalk in this fight, it's the under two and a half. It's the fight doesn't go to decision. The under one and a half has me a little bit skeptical in case we do see it prolonged, but I don't think this fight goes to a decision. Given the way that Hernandez fights, which is all action, always moving forward and always trying to take you out, and then Rodolfo Vieira is just trying to get you out in that first round, somebody's going to get finished here. So I think both guys have high upside. I think Hernandez is going to be heavily faded by the community here, and I think that's going to be a huge mistake as I do think he has high upside of winning this fight. So uh, I'm still going to go with Vieira. I think he eventually gets this fight to the ground in that first round, and it's going to be a little bit too much to handle for uh, Anthony Hernandez. But there is that big question mark. If he's not able to pull off that submission, I think that Hernandez could, could pull away with this and eventually get a later finish in this fight. So... I wouldn't be heavily invested in Rodolfo in this fight. Again, he again he's he's totally possible to get that that first round submission. But I think that's like given what history has shown us over the last couple of events, you can't bank that heavily on a, on an unproven favorite of this magnitude against a guy in Anthony Hernandez, who, in my opinion, has fought much tougher competition, has had better wins uh, in his career, and has been much more tested. Uh, so yeah. I'll go with Vieira, but just be very, very cautious of this matchup. I think it's a landmine waiting to explode on a lot of people that are unexpected of how good Anthony Hernandez actually is. So I'll go with Vieira, uh, decision, but 9,300, in my opinion, is a little bit too much of a stretch given the, the amount of unknowns regarding uh, Vieira still, especially when he gets pushed later in fights. All right, next up, we got uh, Julian Marquez versus Mackie Patolo, minus 165 for Marquez at 8,700, and then we got 7,500 with plus 175 or plus 145 for uh, Mackie Patolo. Now, Patolo is one of my better underdogs on this card, given the fact that we haven't seen Julian Marquez in close to three years now. The guy's been off for a long time, had a lot of botched fights, a lot of uh, injuries and nagging things that are just keeping him out of the cage, uh, and now he's uh, stepping in against Mackie Patolo, who's been staying very busy uh, during this whole COVID situation. Now he's one and two during this COVID thing. Um, 
you know, the, the, the Impa Kasanganai fight, very unfortunate there. We saw a much better technical striker in Kasanganai keep his range and uh, pretty much pitter-patter Mackie Patolo there. And then the Darren Storm fight, you know, nobody expected Darren Storm to go out there and submit this guy the way that he did. Stewart's a, a, a striker. He's not a, he's not a grappler. So I think Mackie was very, very much surprised there. And the Charles Bird fight, we saw uh, him uh, withstand whatever Bird was throwing at him in the first round. And Bird's gas tank was very compromised going into that second round. And we saw the power of Mackie Patolo and the, the, the tenacity of Patolo when he's able to get his game going. And we saw him put away Bird in that second round. Uh, in, in his Callum Potter fight, you know, came in as a minus 400 favorite, but uh, he was fighting at 170 pounds, very compromised version of Mackie Patolo. He he was clearly drained and uh, his cardio definitely caught up to him in that fight, which is why the, the tough veteran in Callum Potter was able to take over and win that fight via decision. Now we see him at 185 pounds. He looks much healthier, but he's always going to be at a bit of a size disadvantage here. In this fight specifically, four-inch height disadvantage as well. Well, he does have the longer reach here at three inches, but I think that the height is going to be a little bit more obvious than the actual reach advantage here. I do go with Patola, though. I think he's the more technical striker. I think he's the one that's, again, being more active as of late, and I do think he has a chance to go out there and outstrike a guy in Julian who needs the time in the octagon to truly wipe off that rust and uh, get a feel of live action. You know I mean? It's one thing to train in the gym, but it's another thing when guys are full clip trying to knock you out and actually putting on the pressure with you uh, in a live action MMA fight. So I do lean Patolo. I think he has a technical skill set to go out there and spring the upset. And at 7,500, I think that he's a solid uh, play if you guys are looking for somebody in the lower 7,000 range, mid-7,000 range. I think Patolo is that guy for you. Uh, a lot of people I'm seeing out there are thinking that this fight's going to go inside the distance. I think that's an, uh, that's a possibility. However, we haven't seen Marquez finish or anything like that, uh, at least in the UFC. And then uh, Patolo, uh, that submission by Stewart, I don't really see a submission coming out of Marquez here. Um, and I think this fight will mainly stay on the feet, but we'll see a more technical approach from both guys. I think we'll see Julian Marquez whiffing on a lot of shots, whereas Patolo is going to be landing some good um, um, uh, combinations and then getting out of the way. Uh, but I do see this fight going to a decision, but I do favor the underdog here. So I'm going to go with Patolo to win this fight via decision, just being the more technical striker and uh, being more active. And uh, yeah, I like Patolo here. Next up, we got Bobby Green versus uh, Jim Miller. We got minus 260 on Bobby, uh, plus 220 on Jim Miller. 8,900 for Bobby Green, always heavily salaried uh, or heavily priced, I should say. And then 7,300 on Jim Miller. Uh, last time around, we saw Bobby Green lose a split decision. And that's kind of the the knock on Bobby Green here is he's always going out there and having these super close fights against his opponents. And that's just not good. You know, I mean, you're just having uh, these the super close fights and fights where you should be blowing these guys out of the water. Like he was a minus two something favorite against Thiago Moises, has a super close fight, shows off a little bit of questionable fight IQ. Uh, and then eventually loses that fight via decision. You know, fights just way too close. He has great striking, Decent takedown defense, does a good job in terms of staying out of submissions, which is kind of Jim Miller's game. I believe the last time we saw Bobby Green submitted was over uh, 12 or 13 years ago. So he's done a really good job in terms of just uh, sharpening up those skill, that skill of his, uh, which is the jiu-jitsu game. But his best skill is his striking. The guy is very good with combinations, very good with his hands, but he, sometimes his output wanes a little bit. Sometimes he's just not able to go out there and put on the best performance. And that's always, he's always the, the question mark going into Bobby Green fights. Are you willing to pay up at 8900 for a guy that just fights as closely as he does? Are you willing to shell out minus 260 for a guy that just doesn't put the foot on the gas when you really want him to put, on the, put the foot on the gas? 
that's why I'll just more than likely always stay away from Bobby Green fights. Stylistically, he should go out there and beat a guy like Jim Miller, who's 37 and has had 47 fights. You know what I mean? Uh, this is a tailor-made matchup for Bobby Green, for us to see a classic Bobby Green uh, at his best, at the best of his abilities. But sitting here, I'm just not the most comfortable in shelling out that money. Like he's, I don't want to say he's untrustworthy like Michael, like a Michael Johnson, but he's nearing that region where it's just like, you just, just come on, you, you put the foot on the gas, and then I'll be a little bit more, uh, you know, down to to back you on a on a consistent basis. So. I still think Bobby Green wins. I think he pieces up Jim Miller. I think he stays away from the power shots. I think the gas tank of Jim Miller will be compromised later in this fight. However, given the fact that we've seen Jim Miller withstand guys like Scott Holtzman and uh, Vince Pichel and see the, the judges' scorecards, I think we'll see the same thing here with Bobby Green. The round three prop was a little bit of something that just stuck out in my head, but given the lack of urgency we see from Bobby Green, I think this is a fight we see go to decision, but I, a fight that will see Bobby Green soundly outstrike Jim Miller. So I'll go with Bobby Green to win this fight via decision but a fight that i'm looking to avoid uh on either side the betting and the dfs side as well too you are going to want to have some um bobby green don't get me wrong uh not as much jim miller in my opinion definitely some bobby green because he does have an upside in terms of scoring you know the the 110 points they did against lando the 97 and a half that he get, did against uh alan patrick but then we see on the lower side you're, you're seeing a score of 77 uh from an 8900 fighter i mean that's a little bit skeptical and that is absolutely a possibility here against Jim Miller who falls into the frame of uh, Clay Guida so I'm, I'm skeptical about Bobby here but I do think he wins and I do think he has the possibility of ending up on the winning lineup just not the most certain about it next up we got a Calvin Gastelum fighting uh, Ian Heinish uh, roughly around minus 220 for Calvin plus 180 ish for Ian Heinish 8800 for Calvin and 7400 for Cal- uh, for Ian this is another fight that I feel like the odds are a little bit too wide I do think Calvin wins but I do think that people continuously overprice this guy given the amount of success that he saw at 170 pounds the fact that he fought for a title at 185 pounds um, but truly deserve uh, Truly is a guy that belongs at 170 pounds. However, he's just not able to get his nutrition and his diet right. So for his last several fights, we've seen him at 185 pounds and always being the smaller guy in his fights. So in this fight, he's going to be at a two-inch height disadvantage as well as a half-inch reach disadvantage. But I think his skill set can kind of close that gap there. Great striker. Shows good wrestling, uh, good jiu-jitsu when he's not, you know, heavily outpowered like he was against Jack Hermanson. Uh, but he's a guy that's solid all around. Great heart, great chin. Um, you know, pushed Israel Adesanya to the fifth round in terms of making that a fight that that did come down to that fifth round, in my opinion. Um, but it's just his size that's always going to be a detriment to him here. Luckily for him, Ian Heinish, I kind of sort as a, a middle-of-the-pack guy, a guy that Calvin Gaston should beat, a guy that he should be able to kind of outstrike and then possibly finish late in the fight, especially if he's able to keep up the pressure and pace to keep Ian Heinish working. Now, Ian normally used his output and his work rate to kind of outwork some guys like Derek Brunson, or sorry, like uh, Cesar Fajera and uh, Antonio Carlos Jr., but then when he's fighting guys that are a little bit more skilled than him, then especially in the grappling realm like a Derek Brunson, Omar Yakhmedov, we see him... Uh, uh, come short we see him start to suck wind a little bit in that third round and that's where i think that we'll see calvin gaslam truly take advantage of him uh we did see him show off his shiny new muay thai skills against gerald mirchard where he was able to knock him out in the first round and we did see him you know go over there to tiger muay thai in thailand and uh try to hone his game a little bit more obviously during this whole covid thing now he's kind of centered in in his uh in his uh what where is he from somewhere in the states i'm not sure why i can't remember oh denver 
He, he's in the, the Denver region. I think uh, that he trains at a gym called Genesis Training Center. He spent time at Factory X Muay Thai as well too, uh, but uh, definitely not what he wanted in terms of, uh, you know, wanting to be over there at Tiger Muay Thai uh, where we've seen him truly sharpen his skills, like I said. But I do think that we'll still see Kelvin get the better of him on the feet, better of him uh, on the, the grappling aspect. It's just how much is that strength, possible strength advantage for Ian Heiner is going to make a difference here. I don't think it's going to make too much of a difference. And we'll see Kelvin Gaston still get the finish here. Uh, either, I think either he gets a third round finish or I think we see him get a decision. But either way, I do like Gaston here. But I do think there are other guys at 8,800 or in that high 8,000 range that could possibly score better than Kelvin as well too. Next up, we got the co-main event. We got the flyweight belt between Macy Barber. Macy, the future barber, coming in as a slight underdog here at 7,900. And then Alexa Grasso coming in at 8,300, the slightly more favored one. So let's start off with the future Macy Barber. And this might be a little bit of a hot take, but I truly think that Roxanne Modafferi, after seeing how the first round went down, would have been live to to beat Macy Barber, even if uh, Macy didn't tear her ACL in that second round. Now, we do have to give our hats off to Macy for still making it the full 15 minutes after shredding her knee within six minutes of, of that fight uh, and she did have some good spots in terms of reversing a couple times and a couple of submission opportunities but we did eventually see Roxy always get the last laugh uh, you know always get the last say and always end up on top and land some good damage from there um but given how successful Roxy was in that first round in terms of taking her down, taking whatever punches that were coming her way it still leads me to believe that we still would have saw the same finish or that's the same result. But people will say what they want to read too much into the ACL injury. And that is definitely an asterisk in that fight. There's fights that we've seen Macy Barber down on the scorecards and then eventually get the finish in the second round because she still has a lot of power and pop on her shots. The J.J. Aldrich fight is the one that comes to mind here where we saw J.J. put her on her butt at a couple of times in that first round and show that she Macy does struggle against fighters that have the more technical and superior hands. Talking about superior and more technical hands, we got Alexa Grasso here, who is the best fighter that Macy Barber has fought in the octagon, bar none. You know, Roxy may have the more experience and, and, you know, probably had a solid game plan in terms of implementing grappling. But from a striking standpoint, Alexa Grasso is the best hands that Macy Barber has ever had to face here. Now we have a one-inch reach advantage from Alexa Grasso, same height, but I think the kicking is where Barbara will be able to maintain her distance. But whenever she does come in and try to close the distance, she's going to eat some hands, which is why I favor uh, Alexa Grasso here. I think she will be able to put on a bit of a boxing clinic and really showcase that Macy Barber probably didn't make the best decision in terms of coming back from an ACL surgery against a girl like Alexa Grasso. Like Grasso is a high-level you know, she's fought the the who's who of the UFC's strawweight division at this point in time. And she's been forced to move up to 125 pounds, just like Macy Barbara, as they were both having trouble making that 115-pound weight class. We've seen a Grasso in there against girls like Tatiana Suarez, who, in my opinion, is just a champion, just waiting to get that title shot. Unfortunately, she's just not able to stay active enough. Karolina uh, Kavakovic, former title challenger. Uh, Carla Esparza, you know, what I mean, super high level wrestling, very, very close fight. You could make a make a, a point for both women to win that fight. And then obviously last time around, her first foray at 125 pounds, fighting the much bigger Ji Yoon Kim and still going out there and outstriking her, notching about 81 points. But this one, I think it's a little bit easier. I think that Grasso is very durable. I don't think that Barbara's going to knock her out. Um, and I do think that the, the hands advantage goes to Grasso here. I think she's going to be able to st- stand her ground and pretty much throw punches whenever Barbara wants to close that distance. 
we will see more movement for Barber. You know, she needs her kicks to really get her game going. But when she closes that distance, I'm expecting the counters from Grasso to truly hurt her, drop her, and uh, really make things a little bit harder for uh, Macy Barber to get her game going. Now, if Bar- we see a completely different game from Barber in terms of her trying to clinch up and trying to get this fight to the ground. Then I'm I'm questionable in terms of how this fight will actually go, but I do trust what we've seen from Grasso in the past that she should be able to find her way back to her feet and then get this back into boxing range. So given Grasso's experience, given Grasso's activity, and given her superior advantage when it comes to the striking realm, I think we see her go out there and box up Macy Barber. Could she finish her? Maybe. Not 100% sure yet. You know, uh, Grasso isn't a crazy finisher or anything like that. But given how proficient she is in the boxing room compared to Macy Barber I could see it and especially if, given the fact that we've seen Macy Barber dropped by numerous opponents in the past and Grasso being the best boxer that she's facing at this point in time it's very very sketchy that we see uh, um, Barber get, get get her victory here so I'll go at Grasso via decision she is one of the more uh, the fighters that I do like in this 8,000 range especially on the lower side um, and I think she wins this fight uh, handily outstriking Macy Barber here and uh, winning this fight via decision all right, lastly, we got the main event. We got Kamaru Usman defending his title for the third time against a training partner, Gilbert Burns. Uh, we got 9,000 for the champion, and we got 7,200 for the challenger. Uh, let's start off about the whole training camp situation. Both of these guys, originally on a Sanford MMA, Black Zillions, uh, under Henry Hoof, who's been their main head coach for this for the last several fights, uh, and Hoof has said that he doesn't want to train either guys out of respect for both of them. So we've seen Kamaru Usman bounce camps. He goes to Fortis MMA for a little bit, but now he's found a spot up there in Denver, Colorado uh, with Trevor Whitman. And I think that's the best choice that he can make given that Trevor Whitman, one of the best coaches out there, but doesn't have this super training camp where he has all these different people to worry about. I mean, he only has the Justin Gaethje, the Rosenama units. Eddie Alvarez has recently jumped over there as well too. And now you're getting all this time with Kamaru Usman I think that we're going to see a much more refined Usman in terms of better striking as that is Trevor Whitman's uh, bread and butter. But we will see his strong wrestling and his uh, clinch game, which has given him success in a lot of his fights. Now, this isn't the first fight that we've seen Usman train with Trevor Whitman. We've seen him uh, during the Jorge Masvidal training camp. And if you guys remember, Gilbert Burns was the one scheduled to fight Kamar Usman that night in July. However, Burns has to pull out. Masvidal jumps in on short notice. So Usman was already out of that Sanford MMA camp. Now... Gilbert Burns is getting a shot once again, and he is very deserving of it. Both of these guys have claimed that they've sparred over 200 rounds with each other. Kamar Usman saying that both of them know how this fight is going to go, and I feel like it's going to be Burns, uh, sorry, Usman being the one that dominates his fights just as he has uh, over his crazy stretch right now, right? He only has one fight from super early in his career, and he's remained undefeated and very, very dominant in all of his fights since. In his last four fights alone, he's averaging, what, 150 points? He had 194 against uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, 168 against Tyron Woodley, 130 against uh, Colby Covington, and then 156 against Jorge Masvidal. The guy is an absolute beast. I put him in that category of potentially surpassing GSP as one of the best 170-pounders of all time, but it all depends on how he continues to, uh, you know, his championship run and if he continues uh, beating guys, you know, as dominantly as he has. Now, it's, the most, it's not the most entertaining. It, he does have a boring style. His best fight, at least entertainment-wise, was his fight against Colby Covington, but that's a fight where the wrestling uh, was pretty much nullified on both sides as both guys are high-level wrestlers. We just saw Kamaru Usman with a little bit more pop on his shots, a little bit more in the gas tank, and uh, eventually get, get that finish in that fifth round. However, we did see the quintessential Kamaru Usman fight last time around 
where he nullified the the striking advantage of Jorge Masvidal, pushing him up against the cage, grinding him up there, you know, throwing in those infamous foot stomps now. But that's his game. He's a boring fighter. He goes out there and just overpowers you. But like people are saying, okay, what's impressive about that? Look at other guys that try to overpower guys and then see how their cardio does. You know, normally those guys running out of gas within six or seven minutes of the fight. Of course, Kamaru Usman is able to do this for 25, 30, 35 minutes if he needs to. I mean, the guy is a beast. He's, he has cardio. He has pace. He has pressure. His striking is ever improving. His wrestling is top notch. His clinch game is amazing. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. Like, the guy has it all. The only qualm that I have about him is the fact that he keeps saying that he has these knee issues. Like his knee, he has no cartilage in between his knees, so it's always grinding and he doesn't do any road work because it's just damaging to his knees. So that's the only negative that I see about Usman here is when will that knee, his unfortunate knee situation really catch up to him? Will it be against a guy like Gilbert Burns who has solid leg kicks? Possibly. But I still think that this is a fight where we see a quintessential Kamaru Usman performance. Now, Gilbert Burns, he has made great improvements in his last couple of fights. I'll give him that. Since moving up to 170 pounds, which has been four fights now, uh, he's finished one of them and just absolutely dominated the other guys as well. Close fight, actually, I would say against Gunnar Nelson. But the Kunchenko fight, he goes out there, takes him down numerous times and does some good work from on top. But this is a guy that everybody has all this hype and steam off of because he knocks out Damian Maya. Okay. And then he, uh, uh, you know, puts an ass open on Tyron Woodley. He racked up 102.1 points against Tyron Woodley in a fight where it looked like, aesthetically, he absolutely dominated him much better than Kamar Usman dominated him. But if you look at the fantasy points, you got 168 points for Kamar Usman when he fought Tyron Woodley. Tyron Woodley at this point of his career is just a guy that just continuously backs up, lets his opponents pressure him, and if he's not able to land his big bomb, he's more than likely losing that fight and in turn makes his opponent look even better. That's exactly what happened with Gilbert Burns. That's why everybody's so high on this Gilbert Burns train because of how dominant he looked against Tyron Woodley. But in reality, Tyron Woodley's just not that fight. He's not a good fighter anymore. Like he he had his wrestling threat in the past and he was way more powerful and, and timed his shots way better in the past. But as of late, man, like anybody can go out there and just outgrind this guy. And that's why Vicente Luque is a minus 250 favorite against Tyron Woodley in their next upcoming fight. You know what I mean? So I think people need to reel themselves back in terms of how good Gilbert Burns has looked of late. Yes, he's made improvements. Yes, he's looked great. And I don't want to detract from the, the win streak that he's currently on. But Kamaru Usman is a, like a fighter that he's never fought before. And yes, they've trained 200 plus rounds together. But sure, you can say, okay, Burns has the inside in terms of how to beat Usman. But it works the other way. Kamaru Usman knows, knows the, the deficiencies in Gilbert Burns' games just as much as Gilbert Burns knows the deficiency in uh, Kamaru Usman's game. So I'm still siding with Usman here. I think he overpowers Burns. I think he's successful in pushing him up against the age, landing some good shots, staying away from the big power shots of Burns. And I will also say that I do have question marks regarding Gilbert Burns' cardio. I think that we've seen it against the Konchenko fight where he starts to slow down later in the fight. But I will cut him a little bit of slack given that he did take that fight on 10 days notice and up a weight class. But he's never dealt like a, a pace and pressure of a Camaro. So maybe we see that car, those cardio issues of Gilbert Burns start to spring up again uh, once this fight goes deeper into the water. So I'm still going with Usman. I think he wins this fight pretty much anywhere. Um, I don't think we'll see Burns get him down. Even if he does, I think we see Usman get right back to his feet. Usman has 100% takedown defense. You know I mean, very high level wrestler. Uh, in my opinion, the only way Burns wins this fight is if he puts him out early. That's the only way I see Burns doing this. So I do think there is a chance of that. So I wouldn't mind seeing people take a little bit of a shot on Burns here or even have him in a couple lineups at that 7,200 range because I do think that we see this fight go five rounds and accumulate enough amount of points. But I think we'll see Usman be dominant 
throughout this fight and win this fight uh, pretty handily. So I'll go with Usman to win this fight via decision. All right, let's move into uh, the the last couple segments that we have here. So uh, I'm going to rifle through these relatively quickly. We got the lock of the night play in terms of your lineups. Kamar Usman, no doubt about it for me. I think he notches another 120, 130, 140 point performance here. Uh, so my lock of the night is going to be Usman. Dog of the night. I'm going to go with Poliana Vienna. It's been doing pretty well for me in terms of backing these underdog women fights. And I think this is another spot here where we see Vienna have a finishing possibility as well too. So I like Vienna to win this fight via decision, or sorry, very via submission. And I think it's going to render her, uh, you know, possibly being an optimal piece in that uh, in that winning lineup. So I like Poliana Vienna here. Fate of the night is going to be Julian Marquez who currently is uh, in the 8,700 range. I don't think this is a guy that you should be paying too high for. Again, given his near three-month, uh, three-year layoff and the uh, opponent that he's going up to against, I think that he is, uh, yeah, he's not going to live up to that 8,700 price tag. Sleeper of the night. I'm going to go with Diego Lima. And that might be, again, that's why I call it a sleeper play of the night. I don't think a lot of people are going to be on him, but I think he has a high upside in terms of, uh, you know, winning a decision here against Bilal Muhammad and uh, performing much better than what the price tag indicates here. Um, so, yeah, my sleeper play of the night will be Diego Lima. Is the main event stackable? I do believe it is. I think we're going to see it go five rounds. Or if at worst, we'll see this be finished in the fifth round with Usman getting his hand raised. But I do think that we'll see a solid amount of points from either side here. So for your head-to-heads and your double-ups, I think this is a spot that you are you will want to uh, or will be uh, or will benefit from uh, stacking this main event. And. Uh, last couple things here. My favorite plays in each range, obviously in the 6,000s, there's only one guy, Anthony Hernandez. I do think he has the upside of finishing this fight and possibly breaking the slate, especially with a lot of people being invested on Rodolfo Vieira. But I do think that Hernandez should be on a couple of your plays as I do think that he has a very high upside here. Uh, 7,000s, I'm going with Patolo, another dog. I do think he goes out there and outstrikes uh, Julian Marquez and uh, gives you a good bang for your buck, especially at that 7,000 range. Uh, 8,000 range, I'm going with Alexa Grasso. I think she should win this fight quite dominant, quite dominantly in the striking realm. Pretty much box up the face of Macy Barber. And a finish wouldn't completely surprise me. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. But being on the safe side, I'm going to go with decision. I think that skill-wise, Grasso is just too far along in the striking game for returning Macy Barber from an ACL surgery as well. So I'll go with Alexa Grasso. Uh, and last thing I do want to say about this, I have this narrative in 2021 about the bell of the ball for the UFC. In the first three events of the uh, of the of the year, we saw their bell of the walls all lose. We got Joaquin Buckley get knocked out. We got um, Munir Lazez get uh, uh, finished as well, and then we had Amanda Hibas who got finished as well. Now, in my opinion, Macy Barber is the the bell of the ball for this card. They put her in the Coleman event spot for for God's sake, even coming off a loss and coming off an extended layoff. So I think they're going to go all in for this year, and I think that Grosso gets her hand raised. And then obviously in the 9,000 range, my lock of the night play is going to be Kamaru Usman. I think he dominates this fight. I think people just, like the GSP days, they always want to do what they can about building up the contender as much as possible. And I do believe that Gilbert Burns is the second uh, highest threat to Kamaru Usman in this uh, in this division, but I don't think he gets the job done. My first highest threat to Kamaru Usman is going to be Kobe Covington. I think if they rematch, it's going to be a close fight, just like the first one was. But I don't think that Burns get this, gets this done here. I think we see Usman continue his welterweight reign. 
All right, let's finish on the last thing here, which is the monkey knife fight tips for, uh, I got Diego Lima landing more than 42 and a half strikes. I think we see this fight uh, take place at range and land him landing enough strikes there to uh, hit the over there. And then Ricky Simone landing more than 47 and a half significant strikes. I think that's a, a solid spot as well too. So uh, th- those are your monkey knife fight tips. All right, that's that's a wrap on this web uh, this episode. I appreciate you guys checking it out. This is my third one. Love the um, appreciation and recognition I'm getting from my from my fellas. Um, again, you guys can catch me on Fight Day either at six or six thirty p.m. Eastern. We're going to be doing the pre-log show. I'll have a very special guest coming on with me. Uh, it's going to be you know a lot. Uh, based on what the comments are like, uh, helping you guys lock up your last couple lineups and giving you guys the finishing touches there. So make sure you guys check that out. Uh, me and Sal will be tweeting it out over the next couple of days to ensure you guys what the time will be. Uh, hopefully we don't get any more fights that drop out. I'll knock on wood for that. Um, and yeah, make sure you guys check me out at MMALOTN on Twitter, at MMALOTN on the IG as well as uh, my Patreon. Uh, all the links are in the description below and then my YouTube channel as well too, which is MMALOTN. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys like and subscribe uh, on Salvetri's channel as well too. The guy's great, uh, expanding his wings, uh, bringing in a lot of other guys to to do other work. And uh, it's a great thing that he's got going on. I'm glad that I'm spearheading this MMA side of things for him and uh, very, very happy and excited for what the future brings. Good luck on your bets this weekend. Shout out to Monkey Knife Fight as well for sponsoring the episode. Uh, and yeah, I'll see you guys on Saturday for the live pre-lock show. Good luck on your bets this weekend and see you guys Saturday.